This is Truth and Love Ministries, where we bring people home to God by learning His truth and experiencing His unending love. Let's go back to the basics. In this series, we're taking a class in discipleship. We are going to discover, and for some of us rediscover, what it's like to be a follower of Christ. In each message, we'll break down the essential things we must understand to be fruitful, stand strong, and give all glory to God. Let's begin. We pray this message refreshes you and speaks encouragement to whatever is going on in your life right now. Now, let's take a listen to the message. Everybody was, I know Sister Audrey said she was waiting for some of the cake, you know. Everybody likes the cake. I thought about, I was looking at the cake and I said, man, I want some of that cake. But, then I, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is I was, I was even more excited to get to the meat. Yeah, when I saw that roast, I saw somebody come back with that big hunk of roast on their plate. I was more excited to get to the meat and the vegetables and the potatoes. My point is, I've enjoyed all of the rest of it, but this is the part that I've been waiting on. Yeah, anyway, when I started this morning, I started with this because this was kind of a precursor to my message. Um, I, start, I started talking about that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that is so unique and it's so important and it's so critical. And I talked about how in that personal relationship, you can be in a crowd of people and something can be happening. And God can at the same time be telling every individual something different about themselves. So awesome. So awesome. How God creates circumstances, and in those circumstances, he reveals to us who we are. He let us see ourselves. And he let us see something about us. And the thing about it is, it would be awesome if all of my spirituality was based upon my relationship with just me and Jesus. But the problem is, he tells me that I got to love you. <laughs> he tells me that my relationship with him is based upon my relationship with you. Yeah. We would love to separate the two. We would love to be, you know, people like, oh, I love God. I don't know about him. But I love God. I love God. And it's good that we have that personal relationship. It's wonderful. It's awesome. And if that was all that was necessary, I think most of us would be good. But because God put us in relationships with each other, he's going to require something. And those relationships can determine a lot of things that happens in your life. So today, understanding the Christian life is what we've been talking about. And today we're going to talk about new relationships. New relationships. So, so glad to have a, a, a couple that's engaged. This is going to help you. This is going to help you. You may change your mind by the end of the message, but it's going to help you. It's going to help you. Anyway. This is where we've been. 
we, we learn that when a person comes to Christ in, 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 in faith in Jesus, faith in God, everything, he makes everything become new. Everything become new. You become a new Christian through the new birth, and the new birth is the beginning of a whole new life, an awesome life that we have. That new life brings about new ministry. First Peter tells us that he makes us priests, kings and priests, who offer worship and service to him. And we become a temple in which his presence is known. He comes to live in us, to indwell us. And then we saw in this ministry we have a great purpose. Okay? So, 1 Peter 2.12, he said now, Live and live such good lives. He said, live your life so good among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. He said, man, your life ought to be living, you ought to be living life so good that people look at you and say, man, I want to serve the God that he serves. God is calling us to live in such a way that people who are highly resistant to God will come to a place where they will glorify God. And this will only happen through the good lives lived by the believers. And this is the Christian objective. What am I here for? What am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be living a life and displaying God to a place and a point where people that don't know him will want to worship. Okay, so we are to achieve, achieve the, the objective by speaking and acting redemptively. We should be asking the question, what can I do or say to bring healing into this situation? What can I do or say to bring grace into this situation? And that's where that great prayer that God gave me, Holy Spirit, you know all things. Show me what to do, how to bring grace and healing into this situation. Sometimes it'll be confrontation. Sometimes it'll be quiet forgiveness. Sometimes you may have to take people to court. Sometimes you may have to use church discipline. But however God leads is going to be the best way. So instead of you saying, how can I get my way or how can I win? Is most of the time, most of our trouble. We want to figure out how we can win, how we can come out on top. If we could get over the thing of I, me, and mine, we'd be a whole lot better off, a whole lot better off. But Christ has called us to a different path. In 1 Peter 2.24, he says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. In this scripture, we saw that Jesus, the pain stopped with him. The pain stopped with him. Now, we realize sometimes the pain has to stop with us. We have to bear the pain. We have to bear it. In other words, when somebody hurt you, harm you, and you think about retaliating, sometimes you got to hold back and not do it. You got to allow, you got to bear the pain. So what am I to do with all this pain that I am bearing? I got a God who can heal. I got a God that I can go to, that I can 
cast all my care on him. Well, these people that hurt me may not have that. So, Jesus, he didn't use deceit. He didn't make threats. He didn't retaliate, but he committed himself to him who judges justly. That's what he did. That's how he did it. He acted redemptively. He left us an example on how to bring healing and redemption to a resistant world. He showed us how to do it. So when somebody do something to you, he said, don't utter threat. Don't, don't use deceit. You know, when they ask him, say, you, you say that you're the son of God. Now, he could have used some words and tried to manipulate around it, but he said, what you say is true, realizing that it was going to cost him his life. He didn't use deceit. When they, when, they, when, they, when they beat him, he didn't utter threats, and he had every man's fate in his hands. He has, he has determination. The Bible says all judgment has been given into the hand of the son. And he said, hell, I could, I could put them all in hell. I can determine where they go. But he didn't make threats. He didn't retaliate. He didn't say, wait till I come back. I'll show you. He didn't. But he left us an example on how we should live and what we should be doing. So Peter now begins to teach us about relationships. What is the reason he gives us this lesson? Why is Peter wanting to teach us about relationship? Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the grace, gracious gift of life. And here's the reason why Peter's teaching us this. He says, so that what? Nothing hinders your prayers. Now, Peter is telling us, he said, now, how I, how I live with you can determine whether God hears me or not. I know we want to keep it between us and God. And that we can do anything to each other, and yet we can still pray and God hear us and God answer us, but it's not, it's not so. He says, he says, now, he said, he said, I want you to do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He, and, then, and then here's the word for. What is it there for? He said, because for the eyes of the Lord are where? On the righteous, and his ears are what? to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's talking about how we must live in the home, in the church, in the neighborhood, and if we want to have an effective prayer life. If you want your prayer life to be effective, this is what we got to do. If God does not hear our prayers, what chance will we have to bring highly resistant people to glorify him? What chance do we have of getting people to come to where we are if God doesn't hear me? The story of Jonah illustrates this where pagans are asking for prayer. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah, God had told Jonah, he said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah knew what God would do. He knew God. So he said, not going. He said, I'm not going. Why? Why? Because I know that you're going to forgive them. And I, I, the preacher, I want them punished. So I'm not going. So Jonah went to the, went to the uh, shipyard, wherever he went, got his ticket and paid his fare, 
to go to Tarsus, and while he was only, they, he, went, he went in the bottom of the ship, went to sleep, and while he was sleeping, a great storm came. And all the people on the ship, all these pagans on the ship, they were, they, were, they, were, they were crying to their God. They were praying, they were praying, but nothing caused the storm to cease. And they realized there's a man down below sleeping. Let's wake him up. So they went down and woke Jonah. He said, they said, Jonah, Jonah, pray to your God. Jonah looked at him and said, well, I would, but I'm supposed to be in Nineveh. <laughs> he and I are not getting along right now. So I don't think my prayers are going to help. So I tell you what. Just take me and throw me off the ship. And they thought about it. They was like, man, then your blood is going to be on our hands. Jonah said, don't worry about it. Throw me off. They say when they threw Jonah off, storm ceased. But here's the point. It's a sad day. It's a sad day. It's a shameful day for non-Christian people to have trouble in their lives and they ask a Christian to pray and they can't pray with any effect. Mm, that's good. That's good. Jonah couldn't pray. The man that was supposed to knew, know God couldn't help him. He couldn't help him. How many times have people come to you and you feel like you need to get them to the preacher because you ain't in a position to pray? Let me call somebody. Why do you need to call somebody? The word says if any man call upon his name, ask anything in my name, he'll do it. He said if you ask anything according to my will, I know that you hear me. And if I know that you hear me, I know that I have the petition that I desire of him. So the truth of the matter is anybody at any time who has a relationship with God can pray to God and get an answer for whoever they are trying to bring to me. God is not limited to the preacher. Now, we we're not living in an Old Testament where you had to go to the priest. And the priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. We're living in a day where the veil of the temple has been torn in two. The Holy Spirit has come into the earth and he has indwelt the heart of every believer. And he has now given us access to the Holy of Holies where you can pray. And it's a shame when Jonah, the man of God, the preacher, said, I have no prayers to offer. And you know what else is sad? Jonah was in the whale, the Bible said, in the great fish, I won't say whale, in the fish, he was in the great fish for three days, and the Bible said, after three days, Jonah prayed. <laughs> yeah. After three days. I would have been praying when they threw me off, when the fish opened his mouth, when I was sliding down his throat, when I hit the inside of his stomach, and the whole time I was there, whether I knew God or not, but after three days, Jonah prayed. God has made us kings and priests, a kingdom of priests. And we should be able to pray. So what good is it to be a priest whose prayers are never heard? There is no effective praying without what? 
right living. And God speaks about this in a picture in the Old Testament. If we look in the book of Psalms 24, verse 3 through 5, and the first part of 5, he said, who may ascend the mountain of God, of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by false God, by false God. they will receive blessing from the Lord. And in Psalm 66, verse 19, 16 through 19, he said, come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. David is not saying that we have to be perfect for him to hear our prayers. If that were the case, guess what? Nobody could pray. Nobody could pray. But what he is saying is, he listens to the prayers of sinners. David is saying, God does not listen to the one that cherishes sin in his or her heart. The one who says they will not address it or let it go. Isaiah 1, 15, 16, first part of 16. He said, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. You know, some, sometimes when I'm sitting and, and, and I'm watching, watching television and, and some things come on that I don't really want to hear and that I don't agree with, so I take my remote and reach up. I either change the channel or mute it. And then when I feel like they, they finished talking about whatever it is I didn't want to see or hear, I go back to the other channel and listen. Did, did y'all know that God had a mute button? <laughs> or remote where he changes the channel sometimes when you start talking? No. Okay. Anyway. No effective praying without right living. James said it this way, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If God sees me acting inappropriately or in an unkind way to people that he has placed close to me, he presses the mute button on my prayers. In other words, he said, y'all don't believe me? He said in Isaiah 15, I will not, I'll hide my face. I won't listen to you. I won't listen. If God says he will not listen, it is impossible, it, it is possible to spend an hour in prayer, an hour reading the Bible, a day at a retreat, me reading my devotional, and it adds no spiritual value. Because God is not listening. There's some people in the room. There's some people here. There's people. There's people in the room. I'm not by myself. I have been, but I'm not today. One of the dangers of being a Christian is false spirituality 
that separates our relationship with God from our relationship with other people. That's, what I, that's why I was telling y'all about the personal relationship. It'd be wonderful if it was just a personal relationship, just me and God. If I could separate it, that's the danger of the Christian life. We try to associate our spiritual life with Bible reading, praying, worship, giving, and all these are good and needed, but will do us no good if God has pressed the mute button on your prayer. You can do all of that. But if God has it's no good. Your relationship with God, listen at this now, affects how you treat other people and how you treat others affects your relationship with God. In other words, you can't treat me any kind. If you, if, you, if, you, if you got a good relationship with God, you're going to treat me right. And you can't treat me wrong and think you got a good relationship with God. Can't speak evil. You can't lie. You can't do all these things. You can't hold grudges in your heart. You can't want to get revenge. You can't want to retaliate. You cannot want to do all these things and think that you are right with God. And if you are right with God, you won't want to do all those things. If I'm going to live by the objective, then I must act redemptively. And if I am to act redemptively, I must pray effectively. I must remove anything that will do what? Hinder my prayers. Okay? He talks about what it means in principle to wives in verse 1 through 6, to husbands in verse 7, and then for everybody else in verse 8 through 12. He is not suggesting that we be happily married to be used by God. In other words, you, don't have, you and your wife ain't got to be on the best of terms to be used by God. Because it is what? It's a personal relationship. God only holds us accountable for our own attitude and actions. In other words, I got to do everything I'm supposed to do. I got to do my part. But if my partner does not respond, that's not on me. He calls us to do everything we can. I remember, I remember when I first met my wife, she called it one-sided reconciliation. In other words, if you've got a spouse that's, that's not believing or not acting right or not doing right, then you have a responsibility to do everything right on your end. You're not responsible for their end, but only yours. God holds us accountable for our individual actions. And he wants to do that when it's easy and when it's hard. That's an amen from Nikki. Amen. <laughs> amen from Nikki. I got one person in the building. Amen to that. 1 Peter 3, 1a says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. If you want to start a fight in church, start talking about that. But I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. If you read it at face value, you'll start thinking that wives have just got to bow down and do what the master says. <laughs> and women hear that and they say, not me. 
So since Joss is here, so since Joss is in the building, y'all a good amen on that. One of the most controversial scriptures in the Bible in our time, women say they see the principle, but what does it look like in practice? Peter spells it out in verse 5 and 6 by giving us a model. He said, now you got to live like, I'm going to give you a model. I'm going to give you somebody to pattern your life after, okay? He says, for in this way, the women of old, the, the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves, they submitted themselves to their own husbands. Okay? Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. That's amazing. I've never been called that. Hmm. Never been called. <laughs> and he says, now, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay? So, God picked Sarah as the model for Christian wives. She was a strong-willed person and knew how to draw a line, but in support to Abraham, she helped him fulfill an incredible ministry. Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, it tells tell the story. So I'm going to kind of give you a, a, a brief overview of what happened. Okay. You know, God came to Abraham. He told him he was going to have a son. His son was going to be in the, in the heir of the world, see to the promise, so on and so forth. And, and, and Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. And time went on. They were getting older. Sarah was about 75 years old. She was barren. Now, if you, if, you, if you planted something on the ground for 75 years and you hadn't grown anything, it'd be hard to convince you that you can plant something and grow something there, wouldn't it? Yeah. So Sarah didn't really believe what God was saying, so she came up with this idea. Great idea. Great idea. She said, Abraham, since, you know, God seems to be slow and he don't really know what he's doing, so let's... Um, make a plan here. I need you to go to Hagar, your, my handmaid, and I need you to go into her and to have a child by her so that this promise that God has made can be fulfilled. Abraham thought on it three or four days. He wrestled with it. No, he didn't. He just said, okay. Okay. You want me to go tonight? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Abraham goes in to the handmaid and she conceives and has a child and his name is Ishmael. Ishmael grows, is growing. All of a sudden, next thing you know, Sarah is pregnant. She's having a baby. Next thing you know, Isaac is born. What a great name. What a great guy. <laughs> He's born. And then after Isaac is born, <laughs> y'all are silly. After Isaac is born, he, <laughs> oh, that's my, okay. Okay, I see why y'all laughing. Anyway, 
after Isaac is born, Sarah is looking at Abraham giving this attention to Ishmael, and she becomes angry and jealous, and she tells Abraham, send the maid and the child away. Abraham struggles with it in his heart, because that's his son. So Abraham is all somewhere by himself. And while he's by himself, God speaks to him and he tells him, Sarah, Abraham, Sarah is right. Do what she said. So Abraham does what he says. You know, I've always had a question about that. And I want to put this in here before we get to the next part. I want to put this out. How did Sarah create the problem And then, when it didn't look right for her, she runs the woman off when she's the one, the reason why they had the baby in the first place. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> I gave it some thought, and this is what came to me. It was never Sarah's fault. <laughs> Wasn't her fault. It was never her fault. It's the same way as us trying to, you know, they've always said if it wasn't for Eve. No? Their eyes didn't come open until Adam ate. Okay? So, my point is, there will be some times when your wife tells you something and you need to say, no. And there will be some times when she tells you something, you would need to say, okay. In both cases, Abraham should have done, in the second case, he'd done the right thing. In the first case, he didn't. He didn't seek God and say, God, should I go into Hagar? He already knew the answer. Yeah. And so he said, he said, he, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't consult God. He didn't get by himself and ask God. So why was she right the second time? Because he was wrong the first time. God made him a promise. God spoke to him and said, you're going to have a son. He should have told her when she came to him and said, go into Hagar. He should have said, no way. God said, you are going to have this baby. I'm not going. So, it's all his fault. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, but it was his fault. So, women who follow the pattern of Sarah will not be giving slavish, unthinking obedience to their husband. That ain't what he's talking about. Say amen, women. That's not what she did. He did not call women to be a cheerleader when men are going in the wrong direction. But that man is still supposed to consult with God and make the decision. She did look up to him and treat him with great respect. She called him master, which means sir or mister. She didn't look down on him. She didn't roll eyes. She didn't make him look 
or feel foolish. I was at, I was at work one day and this, 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 this young girl came up to me and she said, she said, Mr. Isaac, I said, who told you my first name? She said, Isaac, I said, no, mister. <laughs> she said, that ain't your first name. That ain't your first name. <laughs> I do stuff like that to make them do what y'all did, to make them laugh. And that's what they did, laugh. Your name ain't no mister. But she didn't make him feel foolish. She looked up to him. She treated him with great respect. She called him Mr. Meaning she had great respect for him. She didn't look down on him. She didn't roll it. No, you know how, you know how. Whatever. She helped him to become the great man that he was. It was Sarah that gave birth to Isaac. And it was through this line that Christ was born. She helped him. She helped him. Now, he talks about beauty, okay? First, he says that the unbeliever is to be won by behavior and not words. And this speaks to all who've got a family member that you want to win the, win the Christ. And remember this, you know, these relationships were just there. In other words, when I was born, Mary, Betty, Willie, Jimmy, they were already here. I didn't have no choice. I couldn't say, I want him to be my brother. They were already here. This is what God gave me. You know what I'm saying? I was just born into this. So, so a lot of times, relation, <laughs> relationships are just there. They, are, they, they were not chosen. So it's not leave me alone now. Anyway, they're not chosen. So he's saying, pull back on the words. Your life will speak louder over time than any words that you can speak out of your mouth. Your life. He tells us what this beauty looks, this beautiful life looks like. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 2 through 5, he said, now, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. He said, rather, it should be that of, an, of, of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. He is not, listen now, he's not banning jewelry. He's not telling you you can't wear half styles in these clothes. He's not saying you can't wear them. He's saying your beauty should not depend on it. If your, if your relationship with your spouse depends on your beauty, you are in trouble. Because over time, Everything going to go south. <laughs> Everything is going south. So, you know, if you attracted him, you know, with that shape, <laughs> it ain't going to be long. He's going to be gone. <laughs> It should not depend on it. 
if it does, I had a friend of mine, he didn't say trouble, he said, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> you're going to be in trouble. Okay? So, the temple in the Old Testament was overlaid with gold so God would come. In the New Testament, it is us what attracts God and others is not gold, but a gentle and quiet spirit. The outer will attract, but it won't keep him or them. It won't keep them. Won't keep them. You don't believe me? Hold on. You know, you know what? I, I, you know, I thought, you know, people, I meet people from, from school, and they said, Isaac, you look just like you did when we was in high school. I'd be like, I know you're lying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then I, I'd be feeling pretty good and thinking they're telling the truth, you know. And then I'd go through a list and see, go back and look at some pictures, and I'd be like, yeah, they lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they tell them. They, I wonder what they wanted. They, want, they had to want something to tell that big of a lie. In the New Testament, God wants to use a gentle and quiet spirit. He wants to use inward. Now, he goes to encourage husband. He talks about knowledge. Okay? He wants to encourage the man. Now, verse 7. He only used one verse to encourage the man. We don't need a whole lot. We don't need a whole lot. He's he going to use verse 7 to encourage him. He says, now, 1 Peter 3, 7, he said, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. The phrase, be considerate, means to live with your wife according to knowledge. There's nobody else in the world like your wife, and there not better be a man say amen. Thank you, brothers. You better not say you're glad it ain't another one. In other words, your, your job is to know her, to understand her, to learn what makes her happy and to pursue it. Oh, the women quiet, and I can't believe it. Man, this is good stuff for them. It's good stuff for them. Even though it's to the man, it's good news to the woman. To discover what hurts her and avoid it. <laughs> to understand her struggles, her fears, her hopes, her dreams. That knowledge should shape how you relate to her at home. Never let it be said that anyone else understands her better than you. Never let it be said. Don't let nobody know her better than you. If we don't know her like this, we need to work on it. That's what God is calling us to. It's a lifelong calling. Discover who she is today, not who she was 20 years ago. Can't live off past knowledge. Too often we try to live off who people used to be. Do you realize, do you not realize that when we age, we start to encounter fears and we start seeing life different? We, 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 we're just different people. 
I cannot expect you to be who you were 20 years ago. People change. So he said the next thing is honor. He said, treat them with respect. Treat them with respect. Place her in the highest position. Cherish her. Honor her with your time. Honor her with your, oh my goodness, he didn't put that. <laughs> Not for real. <laughs> Not for real. I think I, I, I think I meant to put something else there. Let me, what was the other M word that I was planning on? Mind, that's what I was planning on putting. Use your strength to support and to bless her. Speak to her in a way that makes her feel that she is honored. I didn't. Let go back. Let go back. Let go back. Honor her with your money. money. <laughs> I ain't thinking about y'all. Speak about her to others that will exalt her in the eyes of others. Speak about her that will exalt her in the eyes of others. Why should we do this? Why should we do it? It is so simple. Here it is. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Your prayer life depends on this. Your prayer life is dependent upon this. The first qualification in the church is stability in the home and in the family. It would be sad if God didn't listen to the prayers of its leaders. God has joined these two things together, the relationship and the church. It's all tied together, the home and the church. You know, we, we oftentimes wonder why there's so much chaos in the church. Y'all want to know why? Chaos at the house. You want to know why there's chaos on the job? Because these folk came from a chaotic home. Every position, place in society comes out of the house. Presidents come out of the home. God has joined together. Changing the world begins at home. Living a life of love begins with those who is placed right next to you. Next to you. And this is supposed to go to the church. It's supposed to come to the church. And, you know, when we, when we get unity in the home, we're going to have unity at church. We're going to have unity at work. 
We're going to have unity in our government. We're going to have unity all over the nation because God has tied these things together. And then he says, now, now he's talking to all of us. He's talking to all of us. And when I was doing this, when I, when, I, when I preached this this morning, I don't know where it came from, but my island, you know, my island of voice came out when I was reading this. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. God, that's a lot, you know what? Like-minded, sympathetic, compassionate, humble. He's telling us to do this. He said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. He said, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Why? Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Listen to this now. He said, for whoso, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. And their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Why? For, for, what is that there for? Why should we do that? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Because his ears are attentive to their prayers. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. John Bunyan wrote a book, wrote in his book about a person whom we call Mr. Talkative. He said, let me tell you what kind of person Mr. Talkative is. Like a chameleon, he changes his color every time he changes his environment. Pure religion has no place in his heart or his home. His religion is only in his tongue, met many of them. His neighbors say of him that he is a saint abroad and a devil at home. His family finds it to be so. At home, he is rude and uncouth with a temper like a buzzsaw. Tongue like a scorpion. He attends church and he's one thing. He goes home and he's another. He's a saint abroad, a devil at home. God will never be fooled by Mr. Talkative. Listen, folks, the objective, here's the objective again. We are to live in such a way that highly resistant people will one day come to glorify God. And if we are to do that, we must seek to act redemptively and to pray effectively. That means we have to make sure nothing, absolutely nothing, hinders our prayers. And that begins at home. That begins at home. Let us pray.
Lord, we just bless you. We praise you. We worship you. We honor you. We thank you for the privilege of speaking to us in such an open and honest way. I pray that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us where we are, who we are, where we are in this, what our lives look like compared to this. I pray that you would help us, Lord God. If we're ever going to have peace in our churches and peace in our homes and peace in our country, peace on our jobs, it has to start with those that are close around us. It is an utter shame for, for me to be more kind to people outside of my home than I am to those that are in it. It is an utter shame. God, help us. Help us. This may have revealed the worst in some of us. Some of us may be dealing with some of these situations and circumstances. God says it's not hopeless as long as he's there. As long as you look to him, he said he is waiting and ready to help. But he said it all starts with you acknowledging who you are, what you are, and you telling him you don't want to be what you see. So Lord, we ask you to help us in this hour. Help us in this hour. Help us in our relationships with one another, in marriages, in churches, in all areas of our lives. Help us. Help us to live in such a way that those who accuse us will one day come to glorify you because of the great life that we live before them. We know that our lives won't be perfect. We know that you're able to cover our flaws to conceal our defects and allow them only to see you. Help us today. We bless you for it. We thank you for it. We praise you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure you subscribe and share with someone you know. And tune in next week for more sermons from Truth and Love Ministries.